The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com plus. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the ecologists gathering data by listening. And how people can follow simple instructions while fast asleep. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. This is the sound of a tropical forest in Ecuador. And ecosystems like this are vital. They matter for all humans living on this globe. Even if you are totally not interested in tropical forests, the tropical forests drive our climate. That's Jörg Müller, a conservation ecologist from the University of Würzburg in Germany. But as conservationists, you are interested in the second important topic. They host the highest terrestrial diversity on Earth. But forests around the world are facing a lot of challenges. Timber extraction, agriculture and other industries, along with climate change, are threatening tropical forests. And those challenges don't only change the landscape, they also change the sounds. As forests are converted to open farmland, new sounds appear. The balance of noise changes. Even the acoustics of the environment itself morph. And scientists are now asking if these changing soundscapes could provide them with an opportunity. In recent years, various efforts to reclaim agricultural land and restore forests have been launched, with a multitude of goals from carbon capture to biodiversity increases. But monitoring the progress of efforts like this is not always easy. After all, regrowth doesn't happen overnight, and it's impacted by many factors. This creates what scientists like Jörg refer to as a restoration gradient. Now, tools like satellite imagery can be used to quantify the regrowth of trees and plants, and by extension, estimate carbon capture. But wildlife regeneration? Well, let's hand back over to Jörg. This is much more difficult from the, or it's impossible from the satellites. 
because it's very cryptic. You can imagine a small hummingbird. You cannot easily track them from uh, the satellites. What we need is our standardized methods where we can investigate a whole gradient in time and space. And that's where the sounds come in. Jörg and his team wondered if soundscapes could provide another part of the solution. No method captures everything. Every method has some biases towards some species groups. And in this approach, we used all vocalizing uh, vertebrates, which is predominantly by birds and amphibians and a few mammals. Uh, and then check how they describe the gradient of forest recover over time. Whilst imperfect, Jörg still believed that analysing soundscapes could provide a useful measure. But they needed somewhere to test their theories. And they found it in the form of a reserve in Ecuador, created by an NGO. Inside the reserve or at the edges, you have forests which are still under agricultural use. And some areas are abundant now for two years, five years, 10 years, 34 years, something like that. And there are also old growth patches, so where you have primary forests. And so they set out to record soundscapes at a series of plots throughout the reserve. We did it everywhere. We set a recorder in all these plots along the gradient from active uh, agriculture over recovering forests to old growth forests. And then they set about analysing the data. So our starting point was that we selected from each plot the same minutes from two days within two weeks and hand over these to experts for birds and experts for amphibians. And they were able to identify a lot of animals on this sound. Excellent. And this was our, let's say, gold standard, the starting point. But they didn't stop there. You see, these kinds of expert analyses can be very time-consuming, and Jörg and his team had big ambitions. We use these plots to investigate the role of sound and AI to identify these communities. They wanted to automate the process using AI. And so on the same data, they used an acoustic index analysis. Now, that doesn't pick out individual species, but rather assesses sounds broadly based on fundamental sonic properties like frequency or pitch. But they also employed an AI-assisted program, specifically a neural network, which had been trained to identify 75 species of bird. These birds were from the region, but not from their specific plot. And they're only a relatively small subset of the animals which could be heard in the recordings. But Jörg hoped that it would still be enough to get a reasonable proxy. And indeed, the AI software was only able to pick out about half the species the experts did, owing to its limited training. But what stood out to Jörg and his team is that all their assessment methods tracked onto one another, and onto models of regeneration in the reserve, reliably predicting where on the regeneration gradient a forest sits. And that's something which Jörg says is not always easy to tell, even for experts in the field. As an ornithologist, sometimes it's hard to see if this is a recovery forest or already an old growth. So you are in the forest, there are a lot of trees around you after 30 years of tree growth. Some of them grow one meter or more per year. And then it's hard to to identify what's going on. But if you ask the birds, they show you exactly, it's this is an old growth or this is still a recovery forest. So ask the birds and they tell you something about the progress is the story in a nutshell. 
and their data showed something else. The best indicator they found of the status of regeneration wasn't the number of species recorded, but rather the composition of the species in an area. The number of species is a very weak indicator. And what is the reason? I would like to explain it in a very simple example. So if you go there to an agriculture farmland, then you will find a bunch of birds. And you can record, let's say you find 10 birds there in one morning. And then you go to the old groves and you find also 10 birds. So when you compare, there is no difference. But in fact, these are totally different species. And what we learned is the species in the agriculture land are species which are common more southern parts of South America where the habitats are naturally more open. And therefore, it turned out that the community composition, so the similarity in species, it's a much better indicator to describe the pattern of recovering biodiversity. Now, this automated system isn't perfect. For one thing, there are many, many animals that don't make prominent sounds and so weren't detected by the system. But Jörg still thinks that the measurements are useful. In fact, he tested it by comparing their analyses with a totally independent data set. So, of course, this is a crucial question. And at first, we have to say soundscape are about vocalizing animals. That's it. But in our study, we combined the data preliminary with another data set, which was based just on metabarcoding. So sequencing bulks of insects collected with light traps. So they have nothing to do with our sound. And there are almost no vocalizing insects in this data set. And what we saw is that it's quite well correlated even with our sound indices, which indicates that um, the birds are very integrative. Uh, and if the birds are shifting their species composition, even other communities are shifting. And so maybe birds can be used as a major surrogate for this uh, recovery forest. But this is too early to say that overall, because we have not correlated this to soil diversity, uh, for example, or plant diversity. This is just an assumption which has to be tested further. More work needs to be done, but Jörg sees systems like this opening up new opportunities, for example in the emerging biodiversity credit market. In these models, landowners are paid by companies, individuals, even governments, to focus their efforts on regeneration of biodiversity. The idea works in a similar way to carbon credits and offsets, but those kinds of transactions require reliable reporting mechanisms. And there are no tools available at the moment. And we, can, we have no solution. So we come in, in our area, we can easily say, okay, this is the status of your area now. You collect sound data and five years or 10 years later, you do it again. And we can say exactly, you are more close now to the primeval forest by 20%. And this is paid. And this is really serious, well-recorded baseline data and can make uh, yeah, a baseline for this new upcoming market. So what's next for the system? And as AIs become more prominent, does this spell the end for the expert ecologist? Well, Jörg thinks not. Yeah, I, I think it needs definitely both sides of the coin. So we need the expert. In the long run, we will further develop these AI models with the help of expert identification that they label specific species and provide the SNPs and say this sound SNP is exactly this species and then you can feed your 
AI models with that. So the models are hungry, data hungry, and without the expert, we cannot feed them. Then the expert will never be able to run millions of sound files, but AI can do that. And this is the big advantage. So I think we need the both sides um, and in principle it works. So the scientifically the, the story is done. Now we need better uh, labels from still missing species in the AI models to have better models and then we can run it on large scale. So often people fear that now the experts are run out of jobs, but in fact it's vice versa. So people are more and more interested in their expertise than ever before. That was Jörg Müller from the University of Würzburg in Germany. To read Jörg's paper, head over to the show notes for a link. This piece was produced by Noah Baker and Nick Petrich Howe. Coming up, the research showing that being asleep doesn't necessarily stop someone from following simple commands. Right now, though, he's back again. It's Noah with this week's research highlights. A team of scientists have created a living composite material, which glows when it's squeezed. The material is made with bioluminescent algae called dinoflagellates. In the wild, these microscopic plankton emit flashes of light when disturbed to ward off predators, and this presented researchers with an opportunity. The team embedded the plankton in a soft yet durable polymer called alginate that's extracted from seaweed. Then they used a 3D printer to sculpt the mixture into various shapes, ranging from balls and pyramids to spiderwebs and spirals. Finally, they solidified the structures in a process known as curing. The resulting materials glowed when squeezed, stretched, or twisted, and were sensitive enough to glow even when a lightweight ball was rolled across their surface. When coated with a rubber-like polymer, the structures retained their form and light-emitting properties for up to five months with minimal maintenance. The team say that this ability to convert mechanical force into radiation could have applications in soft robotics and biomedical devices, perhaps even acting as mechanical sensors. You can read more on that in Science Advances. A 50 million year old bat skull is hinting that echolocation is an ancient tactic. Today, most of the world's bats emit high-pitched calls and listen for the reflected sound to navigate and catch their prey, echolocation. But it's a strategy which some scientists suspect only involved in modern bats. And pinpointing the origins of the behaviour is tricky in no small part because it requires paleontologists to study delicate fossilised ear bones, and they tend to get lost or damaged over millennia. In fact, the oldest bat fossils ever found are too flattened to let researchers determine conclusively whether the creatures could echolocate like their modern cousins. That is, until a team from Australia recovered a nearly complete, unsquashed bat skull from a cave in France. The skull's ear bones demonstrated that the bat, a previously unknown species, could probably echolocate in much the same way as modern bats, even though it wasn't their direct ancestor. The skull was also found alongside the fossilised remains of around 20 more bats, hinting that the animals roosted together in caves. You can locate that research in Current Biology.
Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing check. We discuss a couple of stories we've read in the Nature Briefing. And I think I might go first this week, Shamani. And it's a story that I read about in Nature. And it's based on a paper in the Journal of Neuroscience. Now, this is maybe a bit of an aside, but trust me, this is going to make sense. So I had ice cream for dessert when I had my dinner last night. Okay, now I am a big fan of ice cream. And I think a lot of our listeners probably are as well, okay? And these rich, high-fat foods like ice cream are loved, obviously, not just for their taste, but also for their mouthfeel, the physical sensation they produce while they're being eaten. That's definitely true for ice cream, because as it's gotten colder in our Northern Hemisphere winter, I've really fancied like ice cream, but hot. And there's nothing that's quite the same texture and yeah mouthfeel as you say yeah and so this mouthfeel is obviously important then but what isn't necessarily understood is how food texture how mouthfeel like this influences maybe eating habits and how high fat foods exert such a pull on us why, why our brains seem to enjoy them so much oh so this is sort of the gastronomical science of what is it about particular foods that really appeal to us yeah and so a way that a team of researchers did this is they made a variety of different milkshakes oh. and these milkshakes varied with fat and sugar content but this is where things take a slight turn so what they did was they used two pig's tongues that they'd got from a local butcher's what? and kind of made a sandwich with these two pig's tongues and put some of the milkshake in between okay so stick with me here and then by sliding the tongues across each other they could work out the amount of friction that each milkshake was creating and so it's smoothness because higher fat gives lower friction and this is really really important to how something feels in your mouth you were talking about milkshakes and i was ready to volunteer for this study i was like yes i'll help and now you've got into pig tongues which is not what i was expecting well actually it turns out that there is more to it than this so so obviously the pig tongue is, is to get a sense of the smoothness okay but then we move into humans okay so this is where you could have volunteered because there actually were 22 participants in the study and they were given a taste of some milkshakes with the same compositions as those that were tested to work out how smooth they were okay and after the participants had tasted this milkshake they were asked to say how much they'd pay for a full go on this milkshake okay so like give their value oh, of each one yeah. and it turns out that samples with a lower sliding friction so higher fat typically elicited higher values so fattier equals smoother equals basically more delicious via the medium of I'd pay more for this. Essentially, as I understand it, but wait, there's more. So accompanying <laughs> this was some fMRI scans, some brain scans, and these showed a few things. One, that an area of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, which is involved in reward processing, detects the smooth texture of fatty food on the tongue. And this activity reflected the milkshake's different textures and the researchers also showed that brain activity patterns reflected the value that the participants put on each milkshake okay so higher orbitofrontal cortex activity led to a higher valuation and this suggests that this brain region links mouthfeel to the value placed on food so it seems like higher fatty food has a higher value placed upon it and in some real world experiments they offered the volunteers some different sorts of curry 
vegetable korma, as I understand it, with different levels of fat in, and showed that the results kind of mirrored what they'd seen in the MRI studies with some of the volunteers eating more of the fattiest curry compared to the other ones, even though they looked identical. So this has, yeah, like real world implications in how we behave, what we eat. So can this particular finding, could this prove useful in some way? So the researchers say that it might. So these results show that the reward system senses, you know, the fat content of food and that this part of the brain has an important role in evaluating, you know, food textures and and preferences for high fat foods. And I think understanding this neuronal mechanism could be important to understand overeating, for example. Mm. Um, And also obesity is clearly, you know, a serious health issue across large parts of the world. So the researchers say that perhaps this could be used to formulate lower calorie foods that mimic the mouthfeel of these high fat foods as they pass over the tongue and what have you. I will definitely be volunteering for the experiment involving the low calorie delicious milkshake. Not the bit with the pig's tongues, just the taste testing (laughs) bit. Well, let's move on rapidly then, Shalmini, to your story in this week's briefing chat. What have you got? So I've got a Nature article here based on a Nature neuroscience paper. We're diving into the brain science of sleep. And this is actually kind of a follow-up to a previous briefing chat of mine. We often say like, oh, it'll be interesting to see what happens next with this research. Well, here it is. This was early 2021. There was some research on lucid dreaming. Mm. And what it showed was the researchers could almost have sort of conversations with people while they were lucid dreaming. So this is sort of people who have this experience of almost being able to control their dreams. I don't know if you've ever tried to do lucid dreaming. Apparently it's something you can learn. I've only ever had one lucid dream and it was walking around the Shinjuku area of Tokyo following a visit there, which is amazing. But yeah, all right. So it's kind of, you know that you're (laughs) dreaming, but you're saying then that previously it was shown that while these folk were asleep, they could communicate with someone in the real world, as it were. Yeah. So generally while you're asleep, you're not moving your muscles. Otherwise we'd all be sleepwalking all the time. But there are some muscular movements obviously REM sleep rapid eye movement sleep your eye muscles are moving that's why you got that kind of twitching so they'd done things where they were asking the lucid dreamers questions and looking at their eye movements and as I said this was a couple years ago this new study a sort of follow-up to that what they wanted to know was what about if you're not a lucid dreamer you're a, a normal dreamer as it were can you still react to the outside world while you're asleep is there still some level of awareness of what's going on outside and could you actually even potentially respond to that so rather than just being when you're out you're out kind of thing like is there still this extra sense i suppose to an extent of the world around you yeah because traditionally one of the sort of defining features of sleep is that you are not aware of external stimuli you know you are unconscious you're asleep you're not kind of responding but they wanted to know how kind of hard line that was like is it that black and white you're either asleep or you're not and you know obviously their previous research suggests not so what they did this time is they got two groups of people roughly half of whom had narcolepsy So they had both a lot of daytime sleepiness and they had a lot of lucid dreams. And then they had another group of people without narcolepsy and got them all to sort of come into the lab and have some naps during the daytime, basically. So they do point out they don't know about nighttime sleep. Maybe that's different. But they were using um, like EEG, electroencephalography, sort of electrodes on your scalp to actually confirm that these people were asleep and also look at the different stages of sleep, including REM sleep, slow wave sleep, different types of sleep. And then they basically asked them to either smile or frown. So it was a really simple experiment. Mm. And across both groups, when they were repeatedly asked, 
the participants responded accurately to at least 70% of the prompts. So not awake then, but aware to an extent. Not that they remembered afterwards, although that can also depend on whether you're a lucid dreamer yet. But at the time, yeah, it seems like they're both hearing and processing and responding to this external stimuli, i.e. the researcher saying, you know, frown or smile. And, you know, I mentioned that they were tracking the brain activity as well. And they basically were kind of correlating it with in states with more awake-like brain activity, they were more likely to respond. And in some deep sleep, slow wave sleep, they were much, much less likely to respond. So it isn't all the same kind of thing. But what it does show is that sleep certainly isn't an on-off type thing. And actually might be much more of a sort of gradual spectrum of consciousness to unconsciousness than we thought. So we now have these two sets of results then. What next, I suppose? Where do we go from here? I think these researchers are actually quite interested in how this could actually be used as a tool to help study sleep. So obviously this is interesting for our understanding of sleep in itself, but you could also then use this kind of method of like, well, let's give people tasks while they're asleep. Let's give them stimuli while they're asleep and then use that to further explore sleep. And again, you know, we mentioned a lot of these participants had narcolepsy or, you know, maybe people might have issues with sleepwalking. This is a very relevant area for understanding those conditions better. Well, that's a neat story. And I'm sure some of our listeners have been using the podcast to fall asleep to. And I hope they're smiling <laughs> rather than frowning after hearing that one. But let's leave it there for this week's briefing chat. For more on those stories, head over to the show notes where you'll find links to both of them. And you'll also find the link on where you can sign up for the Nature Briefing to get even more stories like this delivered directly to your inbox. That's all for the show, but keep an eye on the podcast feed later this week. We've got a podcast extra looking at how seismic signals measured by NASA's InSight lander on Mars have helped give researchers a better idea of what's going on beneath the surface of the red planet. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can keep in touch with us on X. We're at Nature Podcast or send us an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus.